Welcome to EK on the Go, our new podcast that is bringing together people who are creating, preserving, and celebrating places in the Puget Sound, Seattle in particular. Our guests will include architects, property developers, designers, historians, activists, you name it. Whether you've recently arrived to Seattle or have lived here for decades, we hope that you'll find our podcast informative and useful. I'm Edward Krigsman, and today we're going to do a deep dive into the very heart of architecture, design, and construction. Our guest is Kevin Eckert, co-founder of Build LLC, along with Andrew, and I cannot pronounce Andrew's last name, so I'll need your help on this one. Andrew Van Leeuwen. A shout out to Andrew. In Chase Jarvis's local photographer's Seattle 100, Chase said that you and Andrew make beautiful buildings, combining elegant modern design with sensible execution. Build LLC, your company, is widely revered for the blog's discussion of modern design in the Northwest, as well as for curating modern lists that engage architects, design, art, food, and culture in Manhattan, Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, and Vancouver. Those are a lot of the places where part of our audience is coming from. Your projects include commercial and institutional work, tenant improvements for Creative Live, Chase Jarvis Photography, Queen Anne and Green Lake Community Centers. And then you've also have many multifamily projects like Park Modern, 602 Flats, Burwell Apartments, Harvard Avenue Apartments. And in full disclosure, I've hired Build LLC to help with a small apartment building in Fremont. Today, though, we're going to focus on the design process. Later, we'll be talking about the time we are in Seattle's history, where we're going, how you may feel about change, and how it impacts your work and decisions. There's a spoiler alert. If you're a listener and you've ever fantasized about hiring an architect and designing your own custom home, after today's podcast, you may think twice about it. It's not what it used to be. (laughs) We don't roll up, cut down the trees, and build a house anymore. It's not so simple. Great. So that might be uh, something to look forward to today. So who are you? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I moved to Seattle after college, finishing my master's degree at Kansas in 1996. I've been here ever since. Lived in Capitol Hill. I lived in Belltown with two small children, which was an interesting experience at the time. We've lived in the University District, and now we currently live in Roosevelt. I always like to start the podcast with a place in Seattle that matters significantly to you. My current favorite place is Magnuson Park, just simply because we are there for a lot of different activities for kids soccer, for engaging with the lake since it's got so much waterfront, taking the dog for a walk. There's a beautiful wetland there. And what I always enjoy or what I've discovered is that I'm always happy and enjoying the park for different reasons. It's an old naval base. There's great aircraft hangars that are being repurposed for different uses. There's wonderful old true masonry structures that are currently being rehabbed for affordable housing, which is just going to be a wonderful new layer to the park. And then just all the different wide open spaces and and uses. There's a lot of Seattle history there. You know, the actual sound garden is there that the band took its name from. There's beautiful sculptures of fins from submarines that are just create this incredibly dynamic space that is almost unknown. Nobody ever seems to talk about it. So there's just plenty of pleasant surprises at the park. And I would summarize it as there's been a lot of history there and a lot of layers added, and there's a lot of possibility there. And when I think about Seattle, I think about places like that that still offer us another opportunity to add to the city while we keep its heritage. It's hard to do that with single buildings, but it's really wonderful to do that when you have such a huge canvas. It's a whole community kind of a place, and it extends into time. One of the strangest places that I've come across there is those hills over by the wetlands that were created, and there's these placards to talk about the landing strips where the airplanes came up and down during war. Yeah, there's been a lot of manipulation 
competitive landscape down there, and it's cool. You know, I'm sure Kite Hill was not made for kites. It was <laughs> made for a military purpose, but it's been thoughtfully reinvented, and it's the best of Seattle, I think. Not in opposition to, but there's some development that's currently not all of that positive for the city, and I look at areas like this as offering us a blueprint for the future. I understand that you studied in Denmark? Yeah, right? that's how Andrew and I met. So we met when we were both students in the early 90s, and it was a very transformative time, and it continues to inform our practice on a daily basis. So like a lot of Europeans, but I think the Scandinavians, particularly the Danes, are, they're just, nobody can match their capability of respecting old buildings. I mean, truly old buildings, hundreds of year old buildings and putting a really beautiful, crisp, modern gem right next to it and having it all work together well. You couple that with their capabilities in industrial design, everything you pick up, everything you touch, every door handle, every glass is just really well designed, really well balanced. And understanding how design can be a continuum from the smallest little objects you use all the way to your major urban planning and how a culture has done it so well for so long was just a wonderful experience. Very, very helpful in founding and carrying out a practice. Is there any specific building or architect there that you encountered or teacher? What I love about Denmark is there are names. There's plenty of famous ones. It's more a function of that you don't actually know the names of architects because all the buildings are really good. We have a long history of our interns now. Just It was almost by coincidence, but I think it's also because they self-select their way to us that almost everybody in our firm who's joined the firm in the last, I don't know, five or six years or passed through have all gone through a study abroad program in Denmark and worked in offices in Denmark and had that experience. And so what I've realized is there's just a lot of wonderful small practices and they're creating great space. Is there anything about Denmark then that has, because I haven't traveled there. Actually, hmm. I did when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> My parents brought back a lot maybe of wonderful it, furniture. Maybe some of it had a <laughs> layer for you that you don't know. <laughs> but is there anything specific about the culture history that caused that sort of abundance of good design, whether it's geography or history? or I'm politics? sure it's an overlapping of things. And I, I'm not sure what happened between being uncivilized Vikings to, you know, creating such a cultural heritage. Probably some of it's being homogeneous. There's probably a dark side to that too. But I think it's probably the outward facing, bringing in a lot of cultural parts back to their own place and then just having a respect because they are like many small European countries. They kind of have to take care of everything. They can't spread like the U.S. They don't have that kind of ability. But, you know, I've had the chance to meet through different avenues, people who have been significant urban planners there. And just it's just always a very thoughtful, methodical approach, a very long game. So if you want to join Kevin's firm, you need to go study in Denmark yes, and then, um, then apply. Yeah, and maybe I should start getting a kickback from that program. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to share, I first met you, I think around, the, it was around the Park Modern. It was a condominium building in the University District, kind of near Ravenna Park, Cowan Park. I thought it was magnificent. I was really surprised, really shocked by the quality, the design quality, mm. the materials, and, and so forth, and didn't expect it in that location. It was something maybe you would see downtown Seattle, but it was obviously a much smaller scale than something would be built downtown or maybe Capitol Hill. It was astounding to me. And then I jumped into your blog and your website and started reading about the process that you used to design that building and then other properties. It was apparent to me that you your practice involves building things, but also thinking about what you're building, writing about that, and then having a dialogue with other people about that process. Yeah. The beauty of the Park Modern and other things that I saw that you, the, some of the case study houses left me speechless, but it was very curious about how you developed sort of to that level of refinement and beauty. And so I just want to begin to ask about your just general approach mm. to designing a building. 
I'm going to give a little background from where I came from. My undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. So I and, by extension, I think our firm approach things very analytically. We want to know precisely what all of the parameters are, the restrictions, the opportunities, and we want to map that in a way that we can use that to inform our design. So we actually don't design for a long time. All we are doing is uncovering everything that we need to incorporate to have a very realistic design. When I left school, I worked as a structural engineer for three years. And during that time, I found that many projects were coming to us very late and still not being realized. So somebody had spent a lot of money on design, some permitting, people like me, consultants in the background, and generally had not been realistic about how to get the project accomplished. So that's thereby, that's how the company that we formed became known as Build. We weren't conceptual. We were creating realistic projects and being very upfront about what it would take to accomplish those. The funny thing I think I've noticed over the years is when people understand that we're architects, primarily builders, and we do these things, many people at some point feel like they wanted to be an architect. And their vision of what that means is, I think, a lot of sketching and doodling and watercoloring. But the actuality is, is you're studying really mundane municipal codes and special building codes and updates to ADA codes. And you're just trying to overlap all of that kind of information. So coming full circle to the Park Modern, in mapping that project, we joked that cars and wheelchairs designed that building because the parking requirement at the time was such that we had to figure out a way to get a very challenging site off of a street front with a curb cut that was basically barely allowed to cover enough stalls to create enough homes to make the project marginally pencil out. And it only penciled out because we were designer, developer, and uh, builder. Then every Everything becomes a function of how people are going to use and engage a space, namely wheelchairs. And we used a brand new code, single exit provision, a single stair in addition to an elevator, the elevator not counting as a means of egress. But we used that provision and we were the first building in Seattle under that code to ever try to do that. So we were able to design this whole building around this smaller footprint of circulation and core, which allowed us to have the transparency and the light and the openness we were ultimately striving for. But the building ended up being designed in a morning, but it took three months to get to that morning to truly understand exactly what every little driver was going to be. And then you just start laying over all those maps of all of those different things. And then you try to bring the poetry in, right? You can, you can find the poetry inside of all of that analysis. So the Park Modern has these little entry vestibules that are exterior but are covered yes. outside of the elevator. So I thought that, I think it's beautiful, but I wasn't sure why. I haven't, it's not a common thing that you see. Yeah. So again, that's a fire code related issue is if the, that's an inside thing, it has to be pressurized and then it starts to change everything. And suddenly we can't get the transparency and the light and the view we want in those units. So that very unconventional approach to how to get to units became a function of laying out all of the different code provisions that would govern how to create that kind of an entry sequence and the answer just came out. And, you know, it's not like it falls out of a book and you rule with it, but it falls out of looking at all of those different things that are going to impact that feature. Another question is you have a design-build company, Build LLC, you design and then build properties. Yes. And so what is a design-build company? How is it different? A lot of people, I think, do want to be architects. I don't know if they want to be builders. So on the one hand, someone might think of that as it's indecisive. Are you really an architect? Are you a builder? What is the benefit? And why did you, what out of your background caused you to go in that direction versus one or the other. Right. So I, I came out of the University of Kansas, which had just started what they called a design build studio. It's since gone on to win building of the year, I think three times. That's out of everybody. 
professionals. They beat professionals at the studio. Their drive, their mission is to really drill into creating beautiful buildings and to be able to take your design and then the execution and put those two things together is where the magic comes from, but also where hard work and stress can come from too. I mean, building is a involved enterprise. But for our practice, it was all, again, rooted in the founding of the company, which was based in, wow, we've seen a lot of projects die. A lot of projects go deep and end up not being built. So for us, we identified right away that it's largely an execution. And, you know, again, you want to have a successful and a beautiful design. We want to be architects primarily, and we want to be architects creating great buildings. And we realized one advantage and one way to do that was to leverage our building background to take our own designs and help our clients realize them and really play a robust role. I think the common perception and I think the common pathway is that you have for design build is you have builders who are just wanting to get building projects. And I wouldn't say they're not worried about the quality. I think people generally build things very well. I would say they're not as interested in the design quality. We believe in getting the design right. Capital A architecture is what we would call it. And then executing that. We've identified a word that would describe the continuity of our company all these years and currently is integrity from the sense of we are very honest and clear and open from the initial conversations with clients about what it's going to take to accomplish something. We have an open process where we show them everything, every step of the way, every cost, every vendor. And when we deliver that project, we remain committed to them for years for whatever they may need afterwards. That's what we're after is just adding quality to our environment. And the way we can do that is by the business model we've created. So one thing I've noticed in conversations with you inside uh, the case study house was the alignment of horizontal bands of just building elements. Yes. Also on the blog, you know, I've read about how you align exterior elements, windows, doors, and so forth on a consistent kind of horizontal plane. Yes. And it seems like a phenomenal thing because it connects the people building are going to have sort of a design element that they can build to without having to sort of check back with the architect is, is this the right place for this light switch? Yes. So tell me about that and how that functions in terms of making an economical project. It's interesting. What we've been looking at at building is very expensive. So if you're operating in a premise, though, of trying to drill it down to its bare essence to make it more affordable for more people, then you're trying to take opportunities that you already have to do. You already have to have door handles and light switches and plumbing controls and towel bars and you already have to have all that stuff. So if you simply take it and you move your door handle up a tiny bit and you move your plumbing control down and you move your light switch down and you can put them all literally exactly 40 inches off of the rough floor and 39 and a half inches off of the finished floor on the center line, it creates this almost imperceptible harmony of, you know, theoretically you could walk around with your hand in one elevation and control everything in your home. And that can seem like it's a little bit of a, oh, what would be the word of the personality that, you know, needs that. But really it's more of just taking it and making all of that disappear because it's on one line. It simply is almost like a Zen experience of you don't know why the space feels better. It just does because you've gotten rid of all this clutter. I think about OCD. OCD, there you go. Yeah. That's the word I was and looking because for. Because yeah. the necessity, and this is all the human brains have this, right? Psychologically, we want to line things up. Yes. My four-year-old son wants to line up his matchbox cars or his Legos. True. And so there is a human uh, need to have that simplicity yep. and clarity. That's the thing. And, it, and it's funny, it, you know, we've been at this now almost 20 years, and it took about 10 to really dial that system. In. You would think it would be easier, but it's not because the door manufacturer wants to do their thing where they want to do their thing. The plumber rolls into the job site and says, I'm going to put it at the standard height. And it's like, who's standard? 
not your standard, it's my standard, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a build standard, right? And so it took some years to get everybody coordinated and aligned and to appreciate what we were after. And then it's free. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't add cost to the project because you already have to do all those things. But it does take a serious amount of orchestration to get 25 different vendors all aligned around that mission. The simplicity underlying, you know, enormous complexity play a role in terms of your mission? We joke sometimes that we're just hired to make things go away. <laughs> and that we're also making the complex simple. In that sense, I think of what Maya Angelou said years ago when I read something, I spend eight hours of effort to make one page look effortless, right? And yeah. it's like, yeah, I get that. But once you get it rolling and you get that system rolling, then it actually is easier. Is that something new in architecture or is that something that has been always a sort of a note within all great architecture? I think there's some modernists. I mean, I certainly got that inspiration from somewhere, somebody. I think we all borrow fairly liberally and we see something we like and we roll with it. But I would say the modernists, and I don't think of that as a style as much as an approach, you know, what do we have available to us now and how can we make it better, right? Rather than copying the past or making fake history or, you know, we don't do small little pieces of glass in doors anymore more or windows with lights because it's not single pane and we have glass that can be manufactured larger and we like light, especially in the Northwest where mm -hmm. we don't get much. So if you look at what's available now, any good person who wants to consider themselves a modern individual, I think would naturally fall to take advantage of what's available. And so, yes, I, th I think in this case, a lot of the things we're doing, we're just standing on the shoulders of a lot of modern thinking people who came before us. You mentioned light and we're going to talk a little bit later about regionalism and the Pacific Northwest and so forth. But what role does windows and light play in your design process? When we started out, it was interesting. We were still in a juncture of architecture in the Pacific Northwest. There was still a lot of, I would call it neo craftsmen would be the prevailing movement. A lot of fake knee braces off of sides of buildings that weren't holding anything up. In fact, they had to be held up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, strange thing. And when I was an engineer, I remember actually trying to take a knee brace and use it to hold something up. And that's when I realized that the force on it is the reason that all of the old roofs around Seattle with knee braces are tipping because it doesn't resolve the force correctly. We so, reached a tipping point. Yes. <laughs> so, that time we were Fighting. It was hard. It was difficult to get folks to come around to a change of their vision of their form for their home, for their living, their working environments. What year was this, Kevin? This is in right around the year 2000. There were a few pioneers. There was Miller Hall. There were smaller residential architects. Eric Cobb played a huge influence on me. I worked with Eric. And there were groups around pushing the modern agenda, but I felt like we were all fighting over the same five clients who appreciated it. So fast forward to now when it's a prevailing way of going going about work, that's a really foundational shift right there, right? How did that happen? I'd like to think a lot of modern work's been executed well. People have been exposed to it. Back when we were pushing for it and engaging clients and being enrolled in it, it just became a function of what they were saying, which is, I want a lot of natural light. I want big open spaces. I want an open plan. I want my living and my kitchen and my kids and doing homework. I want all of that to be together. And I want it to look like this. And then they'd show us a craftsman house with tiny windows and knee braces and little tiny rooms. And so it was just jointed. So it was an ongoing enrollment for years with different clients to get them to see that what their goals were, were differing from their preconceived notion of what they thought that would look like. So I think between more people simply starting to understand, don't worry about the 
form. Don't worry about what the box is going to look like. Let's look at what the box is doing. Again, that layering, that analytics behind it. And then once we know what it's doing, we can figure out what it's going to be looking like as a function of what it's doing. And these, you know, taking your preconceptions and transforming them into something that will align with your goals. So I think there's the process of that having undergone for many years by us and others, and then just much better modern examples out in the world for people to hang their hat on. Are gourmet kitchens necessary? <laughs> it depends. Are you a gourmet chef? I, my wife and I are not. We, we, we cook simply. It was, and, just, it was a blog uh, headline. Right. So. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> um, Andrew, who wrote that blog, funny thing is he's an incredible cook and loves the six burner deal that he now has since he moved sure. into his new house. So yeah, no, we used to laugh because there were just things that came to us that were not really important for most people. But, you know, we laughed right all those years of black granite countertops, right? Mm-hmm. Till it became the thing that people just couldn't stand to look at anymore. So fortunately, we didn't do a lot of black granite countertops, but it's, again, people come with their ideas of house. And we laugh because a lot of folks come with a grab bag of hundreds of ideas and you would need 50 houses to actually have them all get incorporated in a way that isn't, (laughs) yeah, that doesn't look like a grab bag. So again, we're editing, we're curating their goals down to what will actually make sense, you know, for the way they want to live and use their space. That kind of gets into realm of questions. There's a sort of a thinking of architects as having an ego if you've read Anne Rand in high school yes. and so forth. And it's a romantic notion of this independent creation, yes. you know, a stereotype. But you work in a team environment and you're set up to not necessarily express a creative vision as much as solve a problem, it sounds like. Yes. And then there's the client who brings their own romance around designing a home or a building or whatever. So how do you engage the client that brings all these preconceptions? You know, what's the process of engagement to design and then realization given all of that friction? I'd start with the architect as this, like you said, the Ayn Rand model of this egotistical person. I mean, architecture in the modern era is complicated and it's it's tricky and there's a lot of functions. We're not curing cancer. I have friends that are. That's hard. That's actually truly hard. Or uh, in college, you know, I was an engineer. I had friends that were studying aerospace. My buildings don't have to fly. There's a whole level of stresses there that are harder to overcome that luckily my brain doesn't have to try and tackle. I don't think it'd be capable of it. So when we engage with the client, if you can put ego aside, which as you're pointing to, we have founded our company to try to do. I've noticed when we're sharing ideas back to clients, if they've come to us with theirs and we're, we're sharing what we're hearing back to them, that it's important to make sure that they know when we say, this is our interpretation of what you've wanting to do, this is what it's going to look like, that we're not actually trying to put it on them. It's just a clear outgrowth of what they've shared. And it's just on paper. It's not built yet. So we encourage our clients to just tear it apart and not fix it. Just tell us what they do and don't like. And that's our job. Very neutral tone. Very neutral. And we, like any professional, you know, your doctor gives you advice. A lot of people, I don't think, follow it because they still smoke. They don't get enough exercise. They don't eat what, you know. So all we're doing is offering the best professional advice and people can take what they want and not, and we will resolve it. Is there a role, though, for the client ego in terms of going through this whole endeavor, particularly in residential, I can see that would be a factor because you don't need to design a home. You can find one that's been already built. Yes. With a commercial building, I can see there are specific business needs and so forth. Yes. But is there a sort of a process of clearing of the ego of the client to be able to get out of the way of 
of himself or herself and move forward with you. For sure. I, I think it first starts with the fact that I used to joke I'm the worst business closer probably in the history of business. Of all the people that I talk to and who approach us or who are just swimming on the periphery, we may work with 5% of them, 2% of them. I talk a lot more people into not doing a project than I would ever try to talk into doing one. It has to make sense financially, lifestyle. You know, right now, Seattle is running out of space. We're running out of dirt. To have a client be able to put their preconceptions and their ego aside is one thing. But by the time we've engaged with them long enough to figure out if there's any there there, if there's anything to work on with them, then it's we generally have such a good trusting relationship that by then it just rolls. But it rolls because of the function of they're one of the fish that came up the ladder that we just didn't talk out of doing the project. We used to think, gosh, how are we so fortunate? But then we realized, okay, you know, we've done a lot to put ourselves out in the public realm so that people understand how we're going to go about it. I think folks come with a pretty decent understanding of what they're going to get themselves into with us. And so it's not so much a function of self-selecting, I think, it's just research. So there are architects who will design really what the client wants. And the result is a lot of it, at least stylistically, a mm -hmm. very eclectic body of work. With what I see, and we have some models in here we'll look at, I see a large degree of consistency across your projects. Yes. How do you manage expectations around at least the look and possibly the process? Depends on, I think, the type of project, for one. I think if you're looking at the massive amount of housing, mixed use and apartment housing that's gone on in the city in the last decade, and a lot of it not good, not good at all. Not an add to the urban environment and not going to age well and doesn't even hit the basic lines of durability and engagement with the community. You know, there's a lot of out-of-town money coming in not invested in Seattle. Literally, like any fund, its obligation is to return a maximum profit to its shareholders. That Those kind of real estate trusts do not have a moral imperative to make the city better. They have an imperative to design the thing and get it built and return a profit. So if you look at many areas of our city of this kind of housing, it is a natural outgrowth of the municipal code and design review parameters. We refer to it as paint by numbers. You look at a lot of buildings and they just got a lot of textures to try to make the scale and the feel smaller right, to make them feel more community engaged. But if it's a block long building, you know, and it just looks like it's been painted by a kid, then it's not going to provide an added value to the community and it's papering over it. But it is a really good interpretation of the design review rules and it gets through that process and it gets built and it returns a profit. So a lot of people look up and see buildings, they'll see colors or shapes, but you see rules. Right, yes. being the analytical soul. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's the, it, like there was a, a skyscraper in New York that had all these view restrictions on it from all these years of properties. And as literally almost tongue in cheek, they built a skyscraper that was a perfect diagram of all of the restrictions placed upon that property. And it was an ugly, ugly building, right? But somebody wanted to maximize what was left. And I look around Seattle and I see really well-meaning building codes and committees and design review processes and engagement with the community. And I see a lot of, buildings that are not well done at the Mediocrity. End. Yeah. So if you take somebody like an Ed Weinstein, who I think is one of the best architects in the history of Seattle, still practicing great practice, you know, we chat a lot with Ed about how we're trying to wrap buildings in a beautiful fabric. Not a lot of bays and crenellations on the top that we're going to shoot archery out of and, you know, whatever. It's not this weird form. It's just a really beautiful skin. And you can do that and you can do that on a large building and mm -hmm. it can be beautiful and then you 
you can create a street presence. You can focus on the ground plane at that point rather than all of this animation. So ground plane meaning? The way that the building engages with people coming and going. So the people that are funding these don't live here and not going to be walking by them. Exactly. So they don't have an incentive. Exactly. So we've never even, I don't even know who these people are. We don't work with those types. I do know architects that do, and I understand how their buildings end up the way they do. How do those architects feel about that process generally, not to generalize, but is I, it soul crushing or is it uh, just good business? I think business. I think it's it's good business. I think it would be the folks I've talked to who are doing those types of projects. I think they feel like they're doing the best they can with the parameters they're given. So the perception, though, that good design is more expensive is rife. I would say if you look around our city, that would be a fairly common perception. Uh Um, And it's not true. It's not true at all. So let's talk about your blog just for a minute to back up. How does your blog or your, which is really embodiment of your work, engage in that narrative? Our first blog post was all about why we were writing our blog. And as true now as it was, gosh, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, we give all of our information away. We believe that if somebody, and probably people are doing this, if you really tracked the continuity through our blog post, you could put your own project together without ever hiring us. The idea being that rising tides raise all boats. If we share what we're learning and what we're doing and somebody can take that and make that part of their practice or their project or their whatever, Seattle will improve. Our buildings will improve. We get plenty of questions from all over the place about people just checking in about different things they've read. And so we can see that it will ultimately influence our built environment for the better. Sharing how you can do things, what we've learned and how we believe that can make things better. And the goal was just to be useful. Who are your readers? It's students, practitioners, plenty of homeowners. And again, architecture is something that a lot of people, I think, have felt like they wanted to do or be. And so it's a lot of folks, I think, who can check in and live vicariously. We've met other really powerful bloggers that are also in the space. Bob Borson, who has Life of an Architect, right? And he writes it almost as a much more personal narrative. And that's really engaging. We realized that our audience was much more engaged in the value they would gain. Other people were realizing they were able to engage more at a personal level and, you know, create this, what it would be like to live as an architect. And, and that's great. And But again, our goal is just to provide value. And it doesn't hurt. You know, clients get to know us a lot better. It creates a pathway for people to come to us, which is wonderful. But it also helps to educate people whether or not they even know who we are. We talked a minute ago about we're a local area, we're a region, Seattle, the Pacific Northwest. And we have a history of imported styles and movements from the past. But we've also, in the mid-century of the last century, we had a lot of Roland Terry, Paul Hayden Kirk, mm-hmm. people who were homegrown that went to the University of Washington, most of them, and then really designed properties, buildings, commercial and residential buildings that really were reflective of a regional movement. Is that body of work meaningful to you and today generally? Well, no doubt those would be some of the most direct, what I would say, modernists. It's mid-century, but they were modern thinking, right? They were taking the materials and the environment that they were given and thinking about it much differently. Open space, open timber, natural light, all of that is wonderful. The only shame of it is, is there's only a handful, a couple handfuls of public work that was from that era, from those people. Seattle Center, would you? Uh, Seattle Center somewhat. I'm thinking of there's less known buildings, maybe like there's a Unitarian Church on 35th. That's beautiful mid-century example. And that's something that the public can engage in. There's a lot of wonderful homes, but that's less what the public can engage in. Mm-hmm. And all of those are worth restoring, renovating repurposing so our heritage exists. It's just it's difficult because we don't get a ton of it to 
become available to the public, right? It's so it's it's a little bit of a shame because then the onus is to save a lot of other buildings that maybe aren't as important from my viewpoint for our heritage because they are just I mean, Pioneer Square is wonderful. It's also sitting on liquefiable soils and is, you know, there's problems down there. That's gonna be hard to keep those buildings intact simply because there's some upgrades that need to happen that are just prohibitively expensive. So I think it's wonderful to have neighborhoods like Pioneer Square and to hang on to that heritage, but it's challenging. Whereas, like you were pointing out, Edward, the mid-century, especially the way the Northwest went about it, is, is unique. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Specifically, what made modernism different in the 1950s and 60s in Seattle than in Chicago or Japan? You know, if you look at our, not just our environment from a standpoint of where we're building, but the materials, right? We were talking second growth, beautiful timber that could create nice open space. And the expression of using that timber and exposing structure. And, you know, again, we now are manufacturing larger glass, granted single pane, but, you know, we had processes that were some unique to the Northwest, like the building materials that were available here. And we had some sites that were unique. Another public facing, although expensive, would be canless, right? You would never create a restaurant perched on that edge of the hill under the current environment and codes. It just wouldn't happen. But yet there was an outgrowth of these very challenging sites, even back then, of course, very challenging to build on. And this love of open space and timber construction and emerging technologies. And I think if you combine enough unique parts of what we have in the Northwest with some of the other technologies that were just emerging in the world, it became this wonderful palette that, you know, these forward thinking folks could use. And they they all reference each other. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of them were, they were colleagues, some of them were friends and definitely were able to create a community that could prosper that way. And then modernism sort of faded out and wasn't as important yeah. you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, I think some of it continued on, but definitely got influenced by other forces and other styles or just styles, right? I don't think those Northwest mid-century architects thought of themselves as mid-century modern architects, right. right? They just thought of themselves as this is the way we approach design. After the war and did a yeah. different approach. We have next to us, you can't see this on the podcast, but it'll be on the website afterwards. There's two three-dimensional models. Are these that Kevin brought in, are these balsa wood? These are, yeah, they're actually handmade. We've tinkered with three-dimensional printing and incorporated some of that into um, some of our design. Like we used it for the solar panel wall, the white wall on this smaller model to the right. These were the ones that were easier to carry here, <laughs> <laughs> which is why they're here. I brought some photos of some other projects that have more context to them. You know, why we have chosen a building design or a solution inside of the other things influencing that site. But I brought these because this first one is a small four-unit apartment on Capitol Hill, which is a challenging building type to accomplish simply because you have to spread the cost of entry, you know, the basic building costs of a foundation and groundwater issues and utilities and all of that. Instead of being able to spread that over, say, 30 apartment units or, or more, you have to figure out a way to do it over four. Again, local person owns this property for years. Can you disclose the address? It's at the corner of 12th and Mercer on Capitol Hill. So it's a lot of our listeners have probably walked by that corner. Yeah, and that it's, spot. It, yeah. These, are, these are actually... This is funny, you know, here we have our blog and our outreach and I know this family through coaching their kids in soccer. <laughs> and uh, so David called me one day and said, hey, I've had this triplex since the 80s that I've been cobbling together and can't chase rats out of it anymore. And I just, I can't do it anymore. I need a project. I said, okay, great. I'll look up your site. I did. And I said, okay, that's going to be a four unit, maybe three or four unit project. It's going to be really expensive. And he said, I don't care. I've wanted to do a project for years with you. Let's, let's just do this thing. So we, since our cost to entry was already high, we went ahead and with our clients' permission, 
admission and, and the enrollment, we made it even a little bit better, better window system, not just large open windows like we like to do, but it's built to last. They're mm-hmm. going to literally pass this along to their kids. They've mm-hmm. owned it for 30 years. They're going to own it the rest of their lives. So that made it easy. Not everything had to pencil to what the outcome would have to be in two years if they were going to sell it or whatever, right? That doesn't mean that we didn't take care. That's the project on the ride. And that's a project that we, um, that I just came here came to the studio from today that will roll out in May and be four really exceptional apartment units on Capitol Hill, which has a lot of, again, new construction that is, I would say, a little less engaging. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly enough, it looks like a garage at the bottom, and it technically had to be for us to get a curb cut and to do that. It's all underground, and Mm -hmm. it's um, David's shop. He's just, again, he's owns and manages properties. That's his profession. And he's just been dying for a shop space for 25 years. And so he's finally got a place to store and work on things for managing his his buildings. The other one is a building section that one of our interns, again, these are painstakingly handmade, but did when we were for this is for a, so this is the other end of the spectrum. We have our four unit project we just discussed, and now we're looking at a 385 unit project. So large that we were actually brought into it as one of three architects at the start of the project. A very forward thinking colleague of ours, Brad Curry, realized he had this very large project, very large for him, very large for us. And to have it be a nice campus, a three-building campus. With Where is this? Campus? This is up in the Central District. Over 11 properties, 11 properties were amalgamated, put together in a very interesting shape. And interestingly, in a city of high displacement and a lot of friction to that, this displaces four people. Isn't that crazy hmm. to think of a central district, center city project of parking lots, an old, almost abandoned church, and all that. Is this near Seattle University? It is very yeah. close. Okay. Yeah, it's 12th and Spruce. Yep. It's right across from the uh, juvenile detention facility, which has its own lightning rod of issues around it and protests. But with that, this became a, a study, and I just brought it because I, I brought a picture of, and we can post it, of the larger model of the entire project. Is that a module of a building? That is exactly that is. So what happens here is building number one is the corner of 12th and Spruce. So that became one architect's building. Ed Weinstein was on the project with us. He ended up helping master plan and then was no longer involved. So we have one architect on one corner. Who is that? That's B9, Brad Curry's firm, B9 Architects. So there's building one. Building three is this large L that became our project, even though we're all working under the same campus. And then interestingly, building two became this, okay, we've got these two different ways of approaching design and form and expression. And so now we brought that together and sort of overlapped it and then worked through how to refine and edit that. So you and Brad are jointly? Exactly on that. So we, in, in essence just because of how it works. Brad took the opportunity to take this sort of cornerstone of the project, which gave us the opportunity to do this nice courtyard and wrap around that. But there's a function of, you know, that's a three-year process to be where we are now to, to simply gather those properties and go through. This even went through the contract rezone. This had to be approved by city council to do this project. So in that, there's 40, 50 public meetings with every kind of stakeholder we could uncover to get their feedback, incorporate in our design, and make sure that this is a community project. So it's interesting, 385 units, a couple of restaurants, a lot of subterranean parking, a lot of just a lot, a lot of physics challenges around this thing. And then the four unit. So I know in Portland, there's more of a master plan approach toward redeveloping entire blocks where they really think about parking and so forth. In Seattle, it seems like things are very ad hoc. Yes. But here, there's probably an opportunity to really think a little bigger. 
Yeah. And again, to Brad's credit, who brought us, our colleague who brought us in, he wanted the buildings to relate, but he felt it important given this kind of a scale that there be enough differentiation so it wasn't monotonous. And I think that's, again, that's putting ego aside and really looking at what's better for the community. And I'd say a little bit more just because it informs our process. I just brought in, again, I couldn't bring in the whole model and I can share this online, but we, our building had the the building we are primarily in charge of has this historic neighbor of Washington Hall. Oh, love that building. Wonderful, wonderful neighbor, right? And of course, the community and even the land use planners and stuff just thought we should all put brick on our building, right? Because that's what Washington Hall is, brick. And it takes a little while, but you can engage them in, okay, what are you after? And then you can show them what new brick looks like, which looks like it's made in a factory because it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's papered on. Mm-hmm. And you can show them what their historic fabric looks like of their building. And you can say, the best thing for us to do is not brick and something that is complimentary and handsome, but is also quiet. So it allowed us to bring, again, our more modern approach of larger windows in a really, really quiet wrapping of the building. And then we let Washington Hall be the star it is. And we, mm-hmm. we just were over here being inconspicuous. The other part we did, which helped inform our design and helped with our engagement, was we took the exact proportion of Washington Hall and made it the proportions of our building. We will put this on the site. We took their exact proportion of building, and that's what became our frame. And we tracked that around our project so that fabulous the proportions of their building are in, embedded in the DNA of ours. Wow. And it became, a, again, these projects are built with a really thin budget, so there's not any extra money to spend on things. So we had to use the parts that were available. We have to wrap the building in something. So how do we do that in a way? And, and we have to do these certain basic things to create a building. And this just allowed us to engage with our neighbor with the resources that we could put in. How that. nice. When you go online, look at the design and how the two buildings relate. I would never have noticed it, but it's great to sort of call that out. It so. is. And, you know, and the, and the goal is that we've created a street experience that's really engaging. That's the first experience. You're standing on the ground engaging with this building. And then the proportion of what's happening, because these are large buildings, it's a large campus, is related to its neighbors. That's what we're trying to do. And yeah, you wouldn't distinguish it probably on paper. You wouldn't even know in life. It would just feel good. That's something I can say going through all your properties, all, all the buildings <laughs> you've built. Thank you. Is there a building or space in Seattle that recently built and designed that really represents in a really great way where we are today and maybe where we're headed. Put an optimistic um, spin on all of this. So I'm in the Roosevelt neighborhood. It's booming. And what happened in Ballard 10 years ago is now going to happen in Roosevelt with massive change around certain corridors. And so what I was relieved to discover is larger development groups uh, in that neighborhood have engaged with Weinstein ANU, architecture and urban planning. And the buildings that are the outcome of that are magnificent. I, I believe Roosevelt will be a jewel inside of our city in a few years. Not just because I live there and not just because I happen to have a home there and a a second home that we've had for a long time, but it's going to be a special place. So he created a project called The Rooster that rolled out a couple years ago and is, again, a very simple, and now that I've designed these kinds of buildings over the last few years myself, I appreciate how hard it is Mm. to express a building that simply. You've got four fans coming out of every home, right? Mm -hmm. Where are those? They're Mm -hmm. hidden. They're entirely hidden. And I appreciate that you have to just beat the hell out of that budget to find every little way to get that little bit more glass and that little bit better skin and to justify it to your client. So I, it's another building I walk by. I walk down 65th and I'm excited about where the city is heading. I see the buildings going up and I just know the, the decade that's gone into planning it with the light rail opening that will be magnificent, of course, and all of this development's coming largely because of transit, but it's going to be a nice little forward-thinking modern hub. That pocket of the city makes me very hopeful. I want to just thank you, Kevin, for being our guest. Thank you. 
And thank you, our listeners, for listening. And if you want to see uh, photos of Kevin's 3D models, links to many of the places that he mentioned here today, visit ekreg.com forward slash podcast. In April, we'll be selling one of the case study houses, the very first completed in 2012. That I'm uh, My other incarnation is a real estate broker. So you will have an opportunity to buy that build LLC creation at casestudyhouse.net. You can visit a link to that as well as on our website. If you have questions or requests, Send them to edwardk at ekreg.com. And if there's a place that matters to you, please tell us all about it. We'd love to hear your stories. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from other people like Kevin about places that matter most in Seattle. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.